from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. This podcast episode is part of a special series of stories about science and creativity, the third and final segment on laughter. I'm just really nervous. Yeah, of course you're nervous. You are pregnant, right? There is a creature inside of you moving around, and it's like getting smarter and bigger every day. If I was you, I'd be freaking out. So the practice of medicine obviously makes for great fodder for comedy. The job of doctors is dealing with practically every physical, bodily subject not fit for polite company, and and sometimes, uh, often, uh, dealing with death, and we all know about gallows humor. But it's one thing for a comedian or an actor playing a doctor on television to make jokes. It's very different in real life when doctors and nurses are, say, dealing with you and and your illness. How do those people decide when joking is over the line or not? Studio 360 alumna Amanda Aranchik is a reporter at WNYC, and she brought us this story. Two healthcare workers are performing in one of those exercises taken from improv theater. Here's the scene. They're Santa's elves, and they're standing side by side, and they're sifting through mail at the North Pole. You know, I have, I have problems with, uh, with, with uh, deep vein thrombosis, and these striped <laughs> tights are just killing me. Well, you should try Turns this. out, Santa's workshop is a brutal place to work. These letters, if you've ever read any of these, I want a pony. Well, you know what? I don't get health insurance, so cry <laughs> me a river, oh, Sally. Shift right, shift right. The group included a dental student, an OBGYN, physical therapist. There were 35 people in total who came to Chicago to attend medical improv. Um, um, uh, Many of you don't have improv experience, and it is amazing that in these few short days... in these. The four-day workshop is the brainchild of Katie Watson. She's a professor of medical bioethics at Northwestern University. And in her slightly less academic life, she teaches improv and sketch comedy at Second City. She has merged her two worlds here, teaching improv techniques to improve communication in the medical field. And I think medical encounters are often unsuccessful when one person, typically the clinician, tries to impose a script on the patient before they've even walked in the room. She says that's the value of medical improv. It's not comedy camp for doctors, but it's about learning to walk into situations without prejudging, to be open and honest, to listen deeply, Every medical encounter is to some degree improvised because you have two human beings who arrive, hopefully without too much of a script, and they have to develop a shared story. And develop rapport quickly, which often does involve humor. And it gets back to the question that brought me here. How are people in healthcare supposed to figure out when humor is appropriate? When the workshop finished for the day, I asked the group, What was absolutely not funny? I'm Lucy. I'm an emergency physician. And I think what's not funny is when stories are shared outside of the workplace. What's not funny is denying or dismissing anyone's humanity. Absolutely not funny is doing harm. Abuse. Picking on the vulnerable. Making fun of patients. Jokes that have to do with race. Violence of any kind is not funny. So clearly, when it came to joking around, there were a lot of off-limit topics. It's a long, long list. Right? It's a long list. So 
Uh, I guess what I'd be curious to know is, like, is there anything that is absolutely always funny? This was a harder question to answer. I want something yeah. that's, like, always fine. Like, clowns, always fine. No. No. no! As a group, they couldn't even agree if farting was always funny. Maybe I was asking the wrong question. Sometimes we use, that's not funny, as a proxy for, that's not okay. And, Watson said, those are not the same thing. So I wanted to try an example with her. This is from a doctor named John. And John didn't want me to use his last name. So you're John. What kind of doctor can I say? I am a urologist. Urologist. Tell me, what does a urologist do? Urinary tract and genital tract. So helping someone who's having trouble peeing or has an issue with their sexual organs. If you really took yourself seriously, you'd probably want to tell people you're a neurosurgeon or, you know, a cardiac surgeon or something like that. If you say you're a, a urologist... Oftentimes, people will approach that with like, oh, really? But he loves what he does, and he wants to help people. He also knows his work can lead to some absurd and humorous moments. I had this kid come in, and he said, I think I have a piece of plastic in my bladder. The kid's about 16 years old. I said, well, what makes you think there's a piece of plastic in your bladder? And he said, I was taking a nap, and there was a piece of plastic on my windowsill, and when I woke up, it was gone. The piece of plastic was lost. So John asks the kid, What made you think your bladder is the first place it would be? And he, I don't know, I'm just sure it's up there, okay? So I look up in the kid's bladder, and sure enough, there's a piece of plastic up there. What? That he's shoved up there. Up his penis? Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. So I left the room and just said in passing to a nurse, Boy, I hope he doesn't lose his cat. The doctor says he used a little grasper and he pulled the plastic out, and the kid was fine. But is this story funny? Well, you're asking me if it's funny. Yes. Did you think it was funny? Yes. Kudos. (laughs) I laughed. (laughs) Katie Watson said I was asking the wrong question. Is it funny? And that depends on your taste in humor. She said this is a better question. Was it appropriate? I would say yes. I don't have a problem with it because... The doctor didn't say it to the patient, said it in the hallway. To me, that's his way of just commenting, like, that was absurd, and then moving on. And it was not meant to be heard by the patient. To say that you can never make a joke outside of earshot, I think, just goes too far. Watson describes this story as being backstage humor between a doctor and a nurse. Backstage is where patients are not, and front stage is where they are. Many professions have jokes that they share between just themselves. Teachers, journalists, soldiers. But sometimes the line that divides backstage from front stage gets blurry. Take this story out of Virginia. A man goes to the doctor for a colonoscopy. Sorry, I have so many questions. It's okay. The first time doing anything like this. If you didn't catch that, he said, Sorry, I have so many questions. It's the first time I'm doing anything like this. And then he goes under. Later, in the car ride home, he gets out his phone and realizes he'd unintentionally recorded the entire procedure. And really, after five minutes of talking to you in pre-op, I wanted to punch you in the face and man you up a little bit. The doctors made fun of his anxieties and that he didn't like watching the needle go in his arm. Well, why are you looking then, retard? I said, turn your head. Why are you looking? That person is naked and unconscious. They're as vulnerable as they ever will be. This situation also presents a dilemma. Are you backstage or are you front stage? The patient had accidentally transgressed what the doctors thought was a safe space. 
Watson says that's not the problem, though. The doctors weren't joking about last night's episode of Broad City or a panda video. They were joking about the patient. The patient was unconscious, but they're still present. And the doctor is in the midst of his or her work. And I think that that still counts as front stage. So how are people who work in healthcare supposed to navigate this fraught territory? I went back to the improv students. They said humor is really important in their line of work. It makes all of the difficulties tolerable. I think humor is the thing that can be the light in the darkness. Um, Sometimes if you don't laugh, you cry. Lauren, a social worker from Chicago, said humor is inherent in the kind of work she does. Yeah, I think humor and laughter, it's, it's coping. And I work with people with dementia and their families. And in our encounters, everyone's like, oh, that's, that's real. And it is. But in every encounter, there's a moment of laughter. There's a moment of, you know, the surreal that is occurring. So it helps cope. It helps connect. And it helps deal with what's happening. That was the point. Whether it's appropriate or not, humor in medicine is inevitable. Oh, here's one for you. Yeah, look, read it. I want a new kitty cat. (laughs) You know what I wish? I wish I didn't have heart murmurs. That's what I wish. No kidding. The show will resume in no time, but I did want to take this moment to suggest you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, feel free to write a review, which does help people discover the show. And now, back to the podcast. We're going to return back to the room. Uh, If a neuroscientist were here, they might say we were in a very high state of relaxation, perhaps the highest state of relaxation. So if you feel so inclined, go around and give each other an embrace. (laughs) We did it. (laughs) I'm having a terrible laughter yoga flashback. I think that's technically called PTSD. Well, or light, anyway. (laughs) It, It was slightly awkward, especially the hugging the strangers as you're faking the laughter. Two awkward things combined into one. Um, But, you know, to tell the truth, after our hour there, uh, I did feel better. I felt my jet lag uh, was remediated. Yeah, and I felt kind of weirdly energized. But there was this one person there who, like, totally had our number. My name is Lisa, and I heard you say this is terrifying since December. (laughs) Well, I have to say that I sat for the whole first session going, I thought everybody could see the flashing light because all I was thinking is, This is so stupid. This is so stupid. (laughs) And then when we went around and talked, and I said, this was the stupidest thing I ever did. And three weeks later, I came back. (laughs) What made you come back? So when I left here, I went on YouTube, and I started listening to a lot of things. I got a better sense of the conceptual underpinnings of it, and I did notice that I felt better. And it, it stayed forced for a really long time. So here I see you guys and I'm like, oh, they're gonna think we're so stupid. And you say this is terrifying. And then I got hysterical laughing watching you two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Your laughter at us seemed pretty authentic. (laughs) 
The thing about Lisa is she knows that we think she looks completely nuts and she just doesn't care because it makes her feel better. Absolutely. And it and it was the moment in the talk back period where I thought like, okay, I, I, I get this. Over time, maybe I would be able to join her. Yeah, and I kind of thought it was a little bit of the placebo effect. You know, she thinks it's making her feel better, so it makes her feel better. And we are, God knows, living in the age of the placebo. But in fact, one of the neuroscientists I talked to, Sophie Scott, said that it seems to be more than that. It certainly gives you measurable changes in your body's physiology that does relate to mood. So you get a measurable change in pain thresholds when you've been laughing. That seems to be not specific to laughter. That's probably because you're doing quite a lot of exercise within reason Uh when you're laughing. You also get, and this seems to be more specific to laughter, you get a reduction in adrenaline and a longer-term reduction in cortisol. And those are both hormones associated with stress. Right. So that's really key. Because cortisol and adrenaline are real hormones in your body that are associated with changes, stuff like how your brain is functioning and how much belly fat you have. Right. So maybe they're right. Maybe laughter does have a real physical effect. Now, within that, what we don't know is, is that the laughter or is it the fact that pretty much always that laughter is being elicited in a social context? So was I, was I feeling great because I'd been laughing all afternoon? Or was it actually because I'd been laughing with two friends all afternoon? And it's very hard to start separating that because if I hadn't been friends. with my friends, I wouldn't right. have laughed that much. Oh, the chickens and the eggs there. Laughter makes us feel better, but maybe it's because we, we do it most of the time with people we like and like being around. But I like what she said about the effect being real. Well, I, I do know that the the rare time when I find a, a, a television sitcom these days that actually makes me laugh, like Veep or Silicon Valley, I, I, I am truly addicted in, in, to it in a, in a way because laughing at it with my loved ones feels good. And maybe that's enough. Yeah, that's kind of the point. Well, thank you, Mary, for joining me on this uh, laughter adventure. Thanks so much for having me, Kurt. Not to imply that that is Mary Harris. Mary is a health reporter at WNYC. And that's it for this installment of our Science and Creativity podcast series on laughter. Special thanks to Matt Frassica and Julia Lowry-Henderson for their work on the series. It was produced with support from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Our next Science and Creativity podcast series is wild. Do animals have culture? Bees are making aesthetic choices. If they weren't, all flowers would look the same. The flower is communicating to the bee, remember the nectar you had yesterday? Find out next time on Studio 360's special Science and Creativity series. Birds do it. Bees do it. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 